Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better, and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Zach DeWill, the founder of Terran Robotics at Terran. They're using AI and drones to reduce the cost of housing construction by 10x. In doing so, they're working to ultimately automate the construction process so we can build better homes faster. Let's jump right in. Why don't you tell me about the, the future you're building? As more and more of the processes get automated, the cost of labor uh, essentially, or the cost of machines drops significantly and you're left with the cost of materials. And so a lot of the construction techniques now have actually been optimized for the opposite. So you have stick frame where the, the size of the wood is cut precisely to optimize the, the laborer. Four by eight sheets of plywood are, are designed to be the largest that a human can carry. The, the goal is to optimize the human labor, not the material cost. And so you end up with something like 50% labor, 50% material costs. And that's just because there's so much processing that's happening behind the scenes to get those materials into a ready to use state. And so if instead you look at like, what's the lowest possible material cost material, and then figure out of those materials that are very low cost, how can we, are any of them amenable to automation? So that's where we ended up with clay. So something like a third of the world lives in a house made of clay. The problem is uh, it's, generally the poorest third of the population of the world because it's a very high, highly labor intensive process. And so only in places where labor is extremely cheap is it affordable to build in this way. You know, so even, even in the Southwest of the United States, there was, you know, as recent as hundred years ago, uh, 80 years ago, somewhere in there, there was a large fraction of homes that were being built and occupied that were adobe, uh, you know, one kind of clay structure. And just as, as the cost of uh, labor has increased, that's dropped dramatically. And now it's basically just a construction tech used only used by, by wealthy, you know, wealthy people. But as the cost of the automation drops, that no longer becomes an issue. And now you have low cost of labor or low cost of machines, and then also low cost of materials. So that's, that's where you can get the extremely affordable, affordable house. And the walls are just one part of it, but we're kind of looking at the entire process from that lens. I didn't know that that it's actually more like that the, the clay houses are more associated with like, you know, higher quality, you know, more expensive on like the, the upper, upper end. Cause like generally you think like, okay, people are building house out of clay in like third world countries because that's, those are the materials that they have, but that doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be true. So in the Southwest is I think probably the place where in the U S that's, that's got kind of like the most recent, I don't know, culture around, around building with clay and yeah, there it's the, 
Adobe is an, is a luxury. I mean, and people, everyone understands that there, right? So they're much nicer houses there. The, the temperature is really steady because there's so much mass. So the, the thermal mass of the walls acts as sort of a battery. Uh, so the, the temperature inside is very stable. The humidity is very stable. It also regulates humidity in the desert. It's particularly helpful in that way because the temperature, the outdoor temperature fluctuates so wildly during the day and night. But that happens in the Midwest as well. And there's also, there's quite a, a long culture of clay houses in Northern England and in Germany. And there's plenty of places that are not deserts that have built with clay. It's not restrained only to, only to the Southwest and, and desert. You know, people also think of like the Middle East and stuff like this, but it can be made to work quite well in, in uh, you know, temperate climates as well. It's a bit different. So you have to, you do have to build it in a different way than you would in the Southwest but it, it definitely works and it's definitely a, a very comfortable and, and a luxurious house compared to kind of standard stick frame. The other thing that you said that was interesting is like the, the materials being processed so that like humans can, can go assemble them. Or like I, you walk into Home Depot and it's like they have all this, the boards cut so that you can put them on the, the dolly or whatever and then you can go check out. You can put them in your truck and you take them back uh, to go build versus like, what do you actually need to build a house? Like a bunch of those, yeah. Yeah, and that and that also kind of encourages the homogeneity of construction, uh, like stick frame construction, right? I mean, if you go to the box stores, the lumber yard, you know, you can get say two by fours that are eight foot, ten foot, twelve foot, like these regular intervals. But there's like specifically there's the board that's exactly the right height to make it so that you have an eight foot ceiling, and it's not it's not an even eight foot, ten foot, right? It's like it's it's down to the you know sixteenth of an inch to make that eight foot eight foot ceiling. There, yeah, there's just so much that's going into getting everything ready for a particular kind of construction and also for human ergonomics, right? And I think that's why as more automation takes over in construction industry, it's not going to be purely just automating what humans currently do. I mean, that's almost never how automation works in any industry. You don't have mechanical horses. You don't have, right? You come up with new ways to do solve the problem. You, you don't you don't just kind of automate the the previous solution. Let's jump into how how y'all are thinking about that. What does your kind of step change look like here in terms of evolving us past the the human labor? So the the first step that we're working on now is building the walls. We're using high lift drones. So these are the the current the current drone that we're working on is two and a half meter diameter. This is quite a large drone. This is like not this is not the drone you buy from from Walmart for your kids to play with. Like this is not the drone that you might even see like taking pictures in, at a wedding or like part of like a, you know, movie set or something like that as a construction drone. Yeah. So, so that will basically be able to pick up, pick up clay from that has been mixed and, and, and prepared on site and putting it in the walls. And then there's, there's another step that's basically sculpting. So it's, it's kind of a, it's an extremely viscous material in that state. It's not, it's not flowing. There's no forms. So it's basically pick and place. And then from there, shaping and getting it, getting into the, into the shape that you want, you know, straight walls or benches or what, whatever you're looking for. So yeah, those are kind of like two different tools that would attach to the same machine. And one of the questions we often get is why drones, right? I mean, it's, it seems like, especially when you're picking up something as heavy as clay, right? It seems kind of counterintuitive that you would want to like fly this stuff around, but we looked at a, a bunch of different delivery mechanisms. Cause the, the basic idea is we just need to move material from point A to point B, uh, we need to move tools from point A to point B. And, you know, I think gantries are quite popular. This is like kind of like the 3D printing approach. 
cranes are also already quite popular on construction sites. You, can, you, you might have like rovers or like these like dog type things like Boston Dynamics. And the drone kind of just gets us, it's relatively small, so it's actually relatively cheap and it can scale much larger. So like a gantry, the bigger your gantry gets, the harder it is to be precise about where, where your gantry position is. Right? This is the same problem with, with industrial robots generally, like these big robot arms that you see in a car factory there's kind of this escalating size where you want to be precise at the tip. And so you need to have like precise motors and the precise motors weigh a bit more. And so now like the end of your arm weighs, weighs a bit more. And so then like the shoulder joint has to weigh a bit more and then the, and the elbow joint has to be weigh a bit more. And it kind of just escalates into this like really big thing. Some of the like concrete 3d printers, which was another thing that kind of another route for autom automation, construction automation, they have, as the size of that printer gets bigger, the price does not increase linearly. Having a, a printer that is 100 foot by 100 foot is a harder problem than having a printer that's 20 foot by 20 foot, even just logistically on the site. So like having, having a drone, this is a tethered drone, it's not being run by batteries. So we're not swapping, we're not doing battery swaps or anything like that. Like there's a tether that's supplying power. And so it, it can go, you know, 100 feet from the power, power source. And it doesn't matter if there's hills, it doesn't matter if, if the ground is flat nearby, you know, it doesn't matter any of that stuff. It can kind of get from point A to point B quite easily. I guess, yeah, the, the battery thing is the is kind of what we all assume that drones are operating on. But like, I don't think I've ever seen a tethered drone. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're starting to be more used for like uh, surveillance or like monitoring and stuff. Like, so there's some that'll, you know, send up to monitor like a fire or something like that, like a forest fire or a house fire or things like this, where you're basically just, you need to quickly put something up in the air to be able to, to get a new perspective. But uh, yeah, I mean, the batteries are still quite expensive. Even if you have pretty good charge time or like cycle times, you're still like replacing the batteries fairly often. So I, I think, you know, maybe it's possible in the future, battery tech will improve fast enough or, you know, well enough that, that uh, we could switch to that. But, but having a tether really, it simplifies things significantly. It's like much lighter. We can apply a huge amount of power. And I guess that, that's another question that we get a lot is, is like the, the energy use. It seems like quite inefficient to be flying around, but like the, the cost of energy even when we talk about getting down to like 10 times cheaper than conventional construction, the fraction of that price that is energy is still quite low. It's like less than 10% of the cost, likely much less even than that. And also like these, the like 3D printers, like for the uh, concrete 3D printers, the ones that I've seen, their specs are actually fairly similar to ours in their, in the energy consumption because they're pumping concrete, right? So like a, a concrete pump is, is not like that requires a bit of energy. There's quite a bit of friction pump and there's like a lot of mass you're moving so yeah and then like the, the motors on that gantry are like quite large and so it's actually it's actually kind of in the same ballpark as uh the energy use of a of a large 3d printer what's your design process look like where the drone goes how you place stuff like at some point you have to design the house and then you have to kind of translate that design into like the physical model so like, how do you guys think about doing that the basic idea is similar to 3D printing, you know, people are used to with printing plastic uh, where you have a 3D model. And instead of, instead of actually going to G code, which is basically translating, translating that model into, into precise motions of the, of the printer head into like very precise positions. So, so we actually don't have that because Cobb is so malleable and, and kind of, because it's so flexible, you, you're not actually putting it in a precise location and then expecting it to be there. You kind of put it in the general area and then you kind of sculpt it and shape it and, and adapt, right? And there's computer vision involved in doing this. So with 
3D printed concrete, for example, or 3D printers with plastic, you'll have a print going and, and something will go slightly off and like the whole thing gets ruined. I've seen like videos of people with 3D printing concrete and there's like a guy with a, with a trowel that like jumps out and like catches the, you know, it goes off in the wrong area. It can be catastrophic if it's not in the precise, you know, millimeter. So instead of, instead of coming from that perspective where you expect full control over, over everything and kind of do it blindly, it's actually kind of, it's got, got like a model of what the house should look like. It's got a model of what the house looks like presently. And then it's using artificial intelligence, computer vision, reinforcement learning to figure out what action should I be taking next in order to make the model that represents current reality more match the model that is the goal. And so it's a much more fluid process than kind of you're used to with, with 3D printed plastic and that, and that kind of thing. Primarily again, as a result of like kind of doing it in two steps where you're like laying the groundwork and then you're shaping it. Yeah. And, and willing to, willing to kind of adapt as, as you go, instead of kind of just expecting that everything you do happens perfectly. That actually like simplifies in many ways, the mechanical side of things, right? Because you're, you're no longer required to maintain, you know, sub millimeter precision on the positioning system. If you don't need it to get that precise every single time without fail. That has to be very, very, very precise. If you're off by like a fraction of a millimeter, like game over, right? Right. Same with like screwing a screw in a car in a factory. Like if you're off by a millimeter or a tenth of a millimeter, like that's enough to mess up the whole thing. So you really need that repeatability. And and actually in using reinforcement learning and, and AI to solve the kind of control problem here, it's actually simplified a lot of the other processes that would typically be quite difficult. So for example, you know, people are familiar with Boston Dynamics and like the, the kind of robots they make and, and they're they're awesome. Like the 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 dancing the like humanoid robot that they released recently was incredible. That's kind of like the the classical robotics solution where you model everything super precisely and you make sure like your motors when you ask them to do something, they do exactly that and you know exactly how they're going to act. And then you can control it and you can do those, those kind of amazing feats. Um, but what we're working on is more, more flexible in that it learns how the machine is operating. And then the AI learns to control that particular machine. So one example I, I, I like to tell is how this is maybe a year ago or something. I was training, training it how to fly just as kind of a test uh, test harness here. So it, it actually learn, learns on its own how to fly. It's not just being, being told. And so I was training it at night and I got it working. I was pretty excited. I go in the next morning and it's no longer providing enough thrust. I, I forget if it was not providing enough thrust or providing too much thrust, but it was, it was like no longer working exactly right. And it took a little bit to figure out what was going on, but basically the temperature had changed and you know, the temperature of air and the humidity of air both combined to specify kind of the density of that air and that you know if it's if it's more dense air then you can push against it more easily right and so it changes the flight dynamics and so kind of like the traditional approach to to do this would be to actually measure you know the linearity like try to try to model that relationship of temperature and humidity or or to kind of just the standard drone approach is to kind of just call that error detect a little bit of that error and kind of adapt on the fly and basically never be actually tuned to the particular, like people actually tune their drones to a particular temperature or humidity and they'll like retune them in different conditions instead of just having it sense that and adapting. So what we were able to do was add a temperature sensor, add a humidity sensor and let it learn what that relationship was and how that affected the flight. 
And so without actually having to model any of that ourselves uh, and like model the physics of, of flight, we just give it a temperature sensor, humidity sensor, and now it knows how to fly in both, you know, in, in, in different, different weather conditions. So yeah, that, that, that was a, that was a, a nice example where, where like that learning really made the process much simpler and it kind of solved like, yeah, it, it made it so we didn't have to solve certain software problems. We, we could simplify the hardware, we could simplify the software and just let it learn how to deal with these variations. There's software and there's libraries that like enable you to do this. Are you guys like reinventing the wheel on this stuff? Or is this like, why, why go through and like have it learn how to learn? Like, you know, the temperature controls and all that versus I feel like there's like out of the box stuff, right? Yeah. So there's, there's definitely some out of the box stuff, but like this example here of the, the temperature and humidity change, the kind of the out of the box solution is to retune in different weather conditions, not to actually adapt. Right. So there are probably some that actually adapt where someone has actually gone through and measured the, the you know, that they've modeled the temperature and humidity and the, the air density and, and all of this. But it, it gets complex quite fast. I mean, you have different propellers that have different reactions to the to the density, and I'm not sure there's really even a general solution that's gonna that's gonna work perfectly in every situation. But but yeah, it, your your point about like learning to fly is is a little bit over the top. You don't really need to to learn how to fly. It's more of just a one. It's a good test for us to just make sure that everything is working. That's one thing. And then the other thing is that learning to fly also means that we can learn to fly in conditions where it's exerting forces on its environment. So with the current drone, like if you, they're all basically assuming that they're flying, they're free flying, maybe there's wind and maybe there's a load, you know, maybe they pick something up or drop something. So there's, you know, change in its weight and its payload, but they're not assuming changes in rotational inertia. Like they're not, they're not assuming that they're also not assuming that the, the drone is going to be applying forces to a wall, right? So if it's like tamping a wall or pushing on a wall, like that's going to change the flight significantly. And while you then could, you know, right, change the control, the control software to handle that and to, to do things in a way, like kind of think ahead how you want it to react to forces pushing up on it or forces pushing to the side. And you could code that all out, but that would definitely be a manual process. That would no longer just be an off the shelf you know, drone software that, that's going to handle those, those situations. I think the issue, or at least in my mind, the mental model that I have is like around the consumer drones. Cause I know like you're, you're, you're doing one that's much bigger, but it's not, it's not a DGI phantom. Like you get off Amazon, you get Walmart, right. Where you're like flying around to take photos. This is like an industrial application where there's like lots of, yeah, there's different pieces, different parts. So, so that actually makes way more sense. Also in those, in a lot of cases, the current drone software, even, even for kind of professional use, you either have a human operator, like a highly skilled human operator, like in the case of shooting a movie, there's even sometimes multiple people flying that one drone. Like there's someone flying the drone, there's someone flying the camera under the drone and pointing in different directions, right? So it's a highly manual process or in kind of, say there's like crop spraying is like another, another case where, where drones are like surveying. And there, if, if you set a path and you want it to, to fly and survey your, your, you know, mining operation or something, if it's off by a few feet, when it like looks at this huge pile of gravel, like it doesn't really matter. You know, you definitely don't need like centimeter level or millimeter level position accuracy, position hold in that scenario. Whereas what we're talking about, like we really do need that very high accuracy positioning and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it definitely has to be better than, than kind of the generic GPS rough 
plus or minus a meter type type thing. I want to get some clarity around like the the shaping piece. So so you have the the tethered drones going. It's like kind of laying the the foundation. It's kind of laying stuff for the walls. But then the shaping part where it comes in, it's like actually molding it. Like how are you guys doing that? What does that what does that look like? That looks. I mean the the manual process of building with with clay often has the same kind of process. So you basically put it in there, and when people are doing it by hand, they'll they'll kind of just like push it and poke it. You know, and you're just sculpting by hand, right? One of the things that we found when we tried to replicate those kinds of actions mechanically was that especially with, with the drone where it's not grounded so it can't like push off the ground to push the wall right if it's in the air any any of the forces it's applying to the wall it has to create by pushing the air you know in the opposite direction and so humans actually put quite a bit of force on there whereas it's much harder for us to do that so we actually found that that like vibrating or or like tamping uh, these kinds of forces temporarily put the clay, uh, I mean, it's not just clay, but this is like clay mixture, clay composite into uh, a more fluid state. And so we can shape it much more easily. I mean, it's like common in like uh, tamping the ground to, to make it smooth or, you know, people do similar things on concrete. There's kind of a mechanic, like a vibration tamping type force. And we're still experimenting with exactly what those forces should be and how they should be applied and this sort of thing. Yeah, we, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out yet, but we, we've got kind of the first the first experiments seem, seem to be going well. So what's kind of the, the timeline looking like? What are you guys hoping to hoping to hit? Like, when are you hoping to kind of get, you know, the first building kind of constructed? Yeah, we're hoping to get kind of first first walls constructed this summer, potentially first first building this summer, some, somewhere in that range. And then it, it really should move quickly from there. We're working with structural engineer out of California that helped write the code for the kind of construction that we're working with. That's another thing that comes up frequently with alternative construction techniques. There's questions about how, how do you how do you meet code and regulations and all of this. But yeah, we've got the guy who wrote the code on our team essentially. So that's been a huge help. Yeah, so I think I think we should and and the, one of the co-founder has he he's been in construction in the past and you know is was partway through a uh, uh, architecture degree. He's like got one semester left. I convinced him to take a, a leave of absence so we could focus more on this. But he's like almost an architect. So we've got like, we've got the, the architecture side, like also we've been thinking a lot from that perspective as well. You know, so so really getting, we've got like details of how, how windows are gonna go in, how doors are gonna go in, how it's gonna connect to a top plate, how it connects to the foundation. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of these other details that aren't AI, you know, drone tech side that, that are still quite important that uh, we've been, we've been able to make progress on in parallel. One of the other pieces that seems to be kind of critical here is like consumer adoption and having people be like, okay, or comfortable with like houses being made out of clay versus, you know, traditional stick. I think there, you know, like in the Southwest, it's actually more common to build with clay and it's seen as a luxury, right? I mean, so, so if you start there, then you're in a pretty good spot. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that's that's one easy that's one easy path is just that, yeah, they already know that it's a luxury there. But I think I think also while our first house that we build and sell, we're not going to be able to hit 10x cheaper than conventional construction. We are going to be significantly cheaper than conventional construction out of the box. And I think you know while some people want a granite countertop and like you know white picket fence and the they have their their preferences of what their house is going to look like. I think most people don't really care what their walls are made out of. Like, I think most people actually don't have any idea what their walls are made out of, you know, especially people who are renting or people who, they, they don't care. Like, is it, 
studs behind there? Is there a concrete block behind there? Like a lot of people have no idea and, and don't really care. So I think, you know, that that's one part of it is like you get something, a product that is uh, when they go in into it and, and experience it, like they can tell it's a nice product and, you know, it's a luxurious product. And I think, I think when it's half the price or 10 times cheaper, eventually, you know, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's going to be too, too big of a concern. And, and we, we've already got, when we talk to people, people are quite excited to have, have significantly cheaper housing and like they understand what that unlocks for them. Right. And I think too, like we're, we're hoping to, to release some renderings and some, some visuals of what we're thinking about. But I, I think there's a lot of homogeneity in the construction industry now and kind of in the styles and aesthetics. And I, I don't think people necessarily realize how, how constrained we are right now uh, and how everything looks so similar just because everyone is operating with these same constraints. And once, once you kind of open up these constraints, you know, things that are quite expensive, if you're doing it by hand, become quite trivial if you're, if you're automating it. So even, even simple things like, you know, having a split level in your house where, where like you're, you step down a step or two to get into your living room or, you know, your entryway is a little bit lower and you step up into your, just like really basic stuff like this, or like built-in benches, like bench seating right under your windows, or um, there's a lot of things like this that, you know, we can do for basically free, uh, no, no additional cost. Whereas if you're going to do those kinds of things with conventional construction, it's a huge pain and it's going to cost a lot more. So I think there's a lot of features that we can, we can include that would typically be considered luxury features, but we can do them for, for free, essentially, or for no marginal cost, you know, marginal additional cost. Yeah. What, what, what else like gets you excited about, or like what else is unlocked through this process that, that gets you really excited? I mean, I think primarily I'm, I'm most excited about the societal effects that are unlocked or the social effects that are unlocked. There's so many people who who spend a significant fraction of their income on housing. It's something like half of people's income. Something, something like half of the US is spending half of their income on housing. It's a huge amount of money. And I think it just it makes it so that people can't pursue the things that they want to pursue, right? They just they have to they have to grind, they have to hustle in order to to maintain just a minimum level of, of living. So being able to unlock that I think is is extremely exciting. I think that like the places, the most vibrant places that people think of, you know, like New York in the eighties or like San Francisco in the past and, and Oakland recently, or these like, these are places where people are excited to live. And like, these are places that are not expensive to live. Right. I mean, that's kind of like how gentrification typically happens, but like the, yeah, the exciting places to live are places where people can work a part-time job and do whatever else they want to be doing and exploring whatever other ideas or whatever projects or art or startups or whatever it is they want to be doing. It's unlocking more of that potential that I'm most excited about. One thing I want to have you touch on briefly is like the, the financing side of things. Cause, cause I know like you guys did something cool. Like you applied for an NSF grant and that like seemed to seed as like seed capital to go test and explore this idea. Can you like briefly tell me about why that was a good, why you thought that was kind of the, the approach to take versus, you know, going to raise money, which is you're like, go, go sell equity. It's like, that's what most people associate. And then uh, how that's, how that's worked out and like how other people can kind of pursue that path or like, if it'd be like, why it may be a good fit for other people to go do that. Yeah. Yeah. So the grant that we got last year was from national science foundation um, and they like to call it their seed fund. It's like a SBIR grant is the, is the technical, technical name for it. It's been incredibly helpful to just have that like non-dilutive 
$256,000. And then the state of Indiana also has a matching program. So they had like $50,000 of matching. So it was like just a touch over $300,000 of undiluted funding, which is incredible. There was definitely some risk going into it of like spending the time to write up this grant and put all the details in there. And then you just, you know, either you get it or you don't. So, so there's some risk at that side, but it's been a huge plus to have that. And, and also, also to, it, it kind of gives a lot of credibility too. I think, I think a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people hear like, oh yeah, you're funded by the National Science Foundation. It's like the, it opens, it opens up doors. So that, that's been helpful. Even at, even at that, that kind of like relatively small amount of money, as far as equity, you know, like VC funding, $300,000 is not that, that much money, but the, yeah, but it's, it's still been quite helpful. And, and we, we are planning on raising more money soon, you know, in the next few months, uh, and more, more kind of standard VC route. And, uh, but there's, there's also a phase two grant that's possible from the National Science Foundation. That's a million dollars plus $500,000 of matching, matching money. So yeah, so they're definitely, definitely looking in, looking into that. And there, there are other, like they funded other, like, yeah, cool companies. Like there was one Blue River technology, like they were SBIR funded. Um, they, they do autonomous uh, weeding. I, I was watching before I knew about SBIR and all this stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, they're, they're also funded that way. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's definitely cool. And, and the SBIR grant in particular from NSF is quite open-ended. So, you know, the, the one that we were under was an AI, but it, it's a very, very general general topic. There are other, other departments, like there's Department of Defense and uh, Department of Energy. And these, those ones tend to be quite a bit more specific. They have, they have kind of a big list of all the things they're looking to fund. Uh, and if you're doing one of those very specific things, then, then you can work something out. Uh, I think it can work well, but, um, but the NSF is a lot more open-ended about what, what kind of projects you can be pursuing. That's something a lot more people should know about and should consider. It's like, there's money, there's money out there to like do cool things, right? People want to support innovation. They want to support new technologies. They want to give people the resources to go build stuff. Definitely. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been, it's been really good. And I, yeah, I, I agree. Like I, I also was not previously aware that this kind of thing was going on. It, it, it's definitely, I'm glad that tax dollars are being spent on like helping our companies. Like this, this it just seems like a really, a really good system. I'm glad that it, I'm glad that it's going where, where can people find you and how can they support Taryn? Yeah. So right now uh, we've got a very minimal website up at, at TarynRobotics.ai. We're hoping to put up a lot more there soon in the next month or two with more renderings and, and kind of plans for what, uh, what we're working on. And around that time, we're also planning on opening up uh, pre-sales uh, wait list. We've already made, we've already made a few pre-sales to be on the wait list uh, just from organic interest from the very little media we've gotten so far, we've even tried to get it so far. But yeah, I mean, if, if people are interested in this kind of construction, like definitely the, the wait list is like very low risk, like $100 refundable whenever you want, but just, just to kind of get on the wait list. And that, that helps prove some of these questions you were asking earlier about, you know, how many people are interested in this? Like, do people actually want this kind of house? Like if, if that's something that you're interested in, definitely sign up for that. And that, that, will, help, that will help significantly. And then also, you know, we're, we're starting to work with developers and real estate investors. And, you know, so, so anyone who's interested in that, in that direction, definitely, definitely get in touch. You know, we've got some local developers here in Indiana that, that are, that are interested and that we're starting to work with, but the more the merrier, definitely like to hear from other, other people, other crazy projects people are working on or interested in working on. And then are you guys hiring as well or not yet? <laughs> Close. So hopefully next, uh, we're definitely hiring, hiring the next uh, month or two. So 
three, somewhere, somewhere in that range soon, soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.